Well, good morning, Fredericton. It's really great to be with you today. I wish I could be with you in person, but to get myself in the mood, I thought I would imagine myself walking across the walking bridge and then walking along by the riverside and coming in to your wonderful new building. So it's great to be with you. Now, over the last few weeks, you've been doing a series called One Big Question. And if you could ask God anything, what would it be? So this morning, we are dealing with the question, is there life after death? Now, it is now 23 years since I first came to Fredericton. And I remember leading the worship at Smythe Street Cathedral in the conference and we were singing the Fatfish song, Here is the Risen Sun. And some of you were there and you may remember it. It was a time when a long association with this church began and it's great to be with you this morning. Now, as we were singing that song, there is a bridge section which says, every knee shall bow before him, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King of kings and ruler of the earth. As we were singing it, I made reference to the fact that just a few weeks before, the world was shocked at the tragic news of the death of Princess Diana. The British royal family, a symbol of a once great world empire, was in disarray over the events leading to the death of the much-loved princess. My point was that the kingdoms of this earth come and go, but the kingdom of God is eternal and will never be shaken. Now, I've started with this because I know you Canadians love a good royal family story. And while I was here in January, I went into a shop in Queen Street to buy a pair of winter boots. The shop assistant instantly recognised my English accent and started to engage me in a conversation about the royal family. And she seemed to think that I might actually know them, much to the amusement of Joe and Mark, who were with me. Now, when Princess Diana died, there was an incredible outpouring of grief, as well as disbelief that such an icon as the fairy tale princess who, by all accounts, had been wronged by our future king, should lose her life in a Parisian underpass. Now, whenever someone famous dies, it is often accompanied, mainly through the media, by a confusion of belief, half-belief, sentiment and superstition. Now, this year has seen a number of high-profile deaths. Kirk Douglas, Sean Connery, 
Eddie Van Halen, Kobe Bryant, to name a few. There are those who believe that Elvis is still alive and some who behave as though he actually is. Obituaries, tributes, flowers, media articles, TV programs, poems are written and often sentimentality reigns where people have lost their heroes. I wonder, is Van Halen doing the great gig in the sky? Is Sean Connery introducing himself to the angelic world with the famous words, the name's Bond, James Bond, mine's a martini and vodka, shaken but not stirred. People we like and have respected and who have entertained us and drawn us into their world can so easily promote a speculative hope about what happens to them when they die. Now, the opposite is true when a monster of the human race dies. Very recently, a man by the name of Peter Sutcliffe, known as the Yorkshire Ripper, died at the age of 74 in Durham Prison. He was a serial killer, brutally murdering 30 women in the late 70s and sentenced in 1981 to life imprisonment. At the time of his trial, there was public outrage. The police were criticised and the media were scathing about how this money had been spent on keeping him in prison for nearly 40 years. At his death, the outrage burst again with comments like, why didn't we just let him rot in hell? Now, the attitudes betrayed by these two examples show us what many people think about life after death. Perhaps there is some kind of existence in an eternal Shangri-La for people we may like or who have impacted us in some way. Or perhaps the fires of hell have been particularly heated for the particularly evil people. The death of a parent, a child, a close friend or a work colleague brings the idea of death to us much closer to home and promotes the question, where are they now? Now, this question is as old as humanity itself. There is a shocking finality about death that provokes us to ask ourselves, what will happen when I die? Now, in the Bible, there was a man by the name of Job, and in one of the oldest books of the Bible, in the story of Job, 
Job actually asks that question. If a man dies, shall he live again? Now, humanity has sought to answer the question from an emotional perspective. I've already mentioned the outpouring of grief at the death of Princess Diana. The recent Remembrance Day memorial services, the honouring of the unknown warrior, the looks on the faces of war veterans creates an emotional atmosphere that often the younger generation do not seem to appreciate. But somehow they become a reminder of fallen heroes whose exploits live on. A few years ago, when Joe was staying with us in Brighton, we decided to have a day trip to France. You could get an early morning boat from New Haven, a port near Brighton, and take the four-hour ferry journey to Dieppe in northern France. One of the things Joe wanted to do was go to the war cemetery where hundreds of Canadians were buried in the aftermath of the fighting to liberate Europe from the Nazis. I will never forget Joe's face as he looked at the hundreds of crosses marking the burial places of men who had left their homeland, Canada, travelling thousands of miles to bring freedom to war-torn Europe. The names on the tombstones represented fathers, brothers, sons, farmers, schoolmasters, bankers, engineers, ordinary people like you and me. Joe was visibly moved. And as he lingered, contemplating the site where men from his grandparents' generation gave their lives and had fallen. Now, it is in that kind of atmosphere that in our humanness, we could easily respond internally and see these men in another existence living eternally. I did myself have a similar experience when I visited the cemetery in Halifax with the graves of people drowned in the Titanic disaster in 1912. But are the stirrings of our emotions enough to answer the question, if a man dies, will he live again? Now, if humanity does not give us an emotional answer, will it give us an intellectual answer? Is there a logical way of thinking that can scientifically prove that there is life after death or not? The answer humanity has come up with is a resounding no. The reasoning is that death is the end. Unless someone has actually come back from the dead, 
However, could it be proved? Now, we will look at that argument a bit later. If humanity cannot find an emotional answer or an intellectual answer, is there a spiritual answer? Surely we are more than intellectual and emotional beings. Now, the 20th century has largely been dominated by rational scientific humanism. And that, to a certain extent, still dominates. Reason and logic give us the answers to life. Western educational philosophy was based on this rationale. However, in the East, the belief in spirits and the supernatural have been given as much credence as the world of science. In 1992, I visited Taiwan for a ministry trip. I was amazed at the technological expertise in the scientific world, and especially in computer technology. At that time, it seemed way ahead of anything I had ever experienced. What particularly amazed me was that with all their scientific and technical knowledge, there was a strong belief in the spirit world and that the spirits of their ancestors were guiding them in business deals and in their whole way of life. When the Beatles visited India in the late 1960s, they opened up the world of the then young people into a whole area of thinking supernaturally, which began to affect the way people thought right across Europe and right across America, right across the Western world. And people began to feel that there was a spiritual dimension to humanity. But does this effectively answer the question? Now, bearing all this in mind, I want to go on and show some philosophies pertaining to the question, is there life after death, that dominate current thinking? So I'm going to give you four views of death. The first of these is reincarnation. Now, simply put, reincarnation is a belief system that says when we die, we will be reborn as something or somebody else. There have been people from the ancient Greeks, such as Pythagoras, to present-day intellectuals, the famous, the creatives, politicians, warriors, and a whole host of ordinary people to whom this belief system is attractive. There are several world religions that hold variations of this view, but the most famous would be Buddhism. It was the philosopher and peace activist Mahatma Gandhi who said this, I cannot think of permanent enmity 
between man and man, believing as I do in the theory of rebirth. I shall live in the hope that if not in this birth, in some other birth, I shall be able to hug all humanity in friendly embrace. There have been many other famous people who have embraced the theory of reincarnation, including Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of the American Constitution. He said this, Thus finding myself to exist in the world, I believe I shall, in some shape or another, always exist. So much for the Christian influence on the founding of the American Constitution. Henry Ford believed in reincarnation. He believed it put his mind at ease. Reincarnation is a very popular belief today. The next view is annihilation. Death is the end. Richard Dawkins has propagated this belief. There is no God, no afterlife. When we die, there is nothing. In 2003, R.E.M. released a song which had huge success. Everybody Hurts. It became a great anthem in stadia around the world where he performed. It was revived in 2010 as the anthem for the appeal to relieve victims from the calamitous earthquake in Haiti. Its philosophy of the meaningless and pain of life spoke of hopelessness and despair for the human race. Now, when you see mass graves with bodies dumped, it is easy to believe in annihilation. The third view is a view that I've, I've given it a name. I'm going to call it optimistic natural integration. Now, this is a very popular belief today and reflected in public outpourings of grief at the death of famous popular people. It is particularly popular among those who have lost children prematurely. It suggests that after death, we somehow become integrated with nature. We are absorbed into the natural world. A popular poem, often read at funerals, puts it like this. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I'm not there. I do not die. The concept of eternal life is that we are absorbed into the natural world and be an eternal reminder to the living who are part of that world. So that's another view. The fourth view I want to mention is what I would call the supernaturalist view. 
This view sees beyond our earthly existence into a supernatural world where spirits of the departed exist. Now, there is evidence that there is a supernatural world, and in fact, the Bible speaks about it. Humanity is more than just physical beings. There is considerable evidence for the paranormal world. Now, spiritualism is a pseudo-Christian religion that through seances claims to be able to contact the dead. And many people get drawn into the world. Now, it is a world that the Bible expressly forbids us to get involved with, but many believe in it and find or try to find comfort from it. I now want to look at how the Bible answers this question. And if we ask God, his reply is actually found in the Bible. So it's the Bible that is our source. He's already given us the answer. So before we actually answer the question, we need to go to the beginning of the Bible and find out why there is such a thing as death in the first place. And it is in the first three chapters of Genesis where we have the story of creation. Now, many people struggle with this story because science and the theory of evolution seem to refute it. That is too big a question for me to answer now, but the important thing for us to remember is not the how of creation, but the why. If you were given a new mobile phone, when you unpacked it and set it up to work, you would have no idea about the technology that makes it work, or at least I wouldn't. In fact, if you spent your time trying to work out how it works, you would probably never understand it unless you were a scientific genius. The reason you have your phone is because it connects you. Its purpose is more important to you than how it was made. And the book of Genesis is like that. There are many things about creation we do not understand, but the Bible is clear about why we exist and the purpose of our life. We exist for relationship with God, and he is the one who makes life make sense. Unfortunately, in the Genesis story, we see man separating himself from God. It says in Genesis 2, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. The story is well known. <clears throat> how Adam's wife, Eve, was tempted. And together, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit. The ensuing result was that the human race was condemned to death. Firstly, spiritual death, separation from God. And secondly, physical death, 
the thing that became man's worst enemy and biggest fear. The Bible story from then on shows how God recovers that act of disobedience, ending ultimately with death actually being abolished. And we get that in the final book of the Bible. It is the story of how the Old Testament looks forward to Jesus coming, Jesus coming and dying, rising again from the dead, and then there is a promise that he will come and wind things up at the end of the age. <clears throat> now, in the next part of this talk, I want to look at how this has happened and how we should respond. Although throughout the Bible, God has given many clues to the human race's eternal destiny, it is in the book of Revelation where it all comes together in a glorious climax bringing our eternal hope. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us the key to unlock what is the meaning of life and what our future holds. The book of Revelation constantly refers back to Old Testament promises concerning Jesus, his teachings in the Gospels, how the epistles in the New Testament explain what that means, and then what that climactic event is at the end of the age when Jesus returns. And there is a recreated heaven and earth. Now, Revelation chapter 1 has these words. <clears throat> Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. <clears throat> now notice here that Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. The Greek word for firstborn is prototokos, and Paul uses exactly the same word in Colossians 1 and, chapter, and verse 15, where he again says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now, this has been misinterpreted by the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that God created Jesus Christ because of the expression firstborn. But what this expression actually means is that Jesus through his resurrection, is the first of this new species of human beings who have been raised through death and resurrection. His resurrection becomes ours. The resurrection shows Jesus supreme rank over the whole created world. Now, when Jesus came to the earth, he raised three people from the dead and there have been many stories of people being raised from the dead. I've actually witnessed somebody being raised from the dead. I'd once preached in a large Anglican church and it was Pentecost Sunday and I preached that Jesus was the same yesterday, today and forever and he still did what he did in Bible days. And at the end of the service I was shaking hands with people as they were leaving and my worst nightmare happened as a preacher. A man dropped dead just in front of me. 
He's stopped breathing. His lips had gone blue. A doctor was there. He pummeled his heart, gave him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, but it didn't work. And quite a few minutes passed before the ambulance could arrive. I laid my hands on him and prayed a very speculative prayer that he might have life, <laughs> hoping that it could be eternal life. But to my amazement, the man sat bolt upright. That night, that man became a Christian. Now, the doctor who had been sceptical about any kind of miracle phoned me later that night to say that he had witnessed a miracle. That man was dead and now he was alive. And as I've said, there are other stories of people raised from the dead. But people will eventually die. Now, Jesus, the prototokos, was not only raised, he is forever risen, the first of a whole new race who will share in his resurrection. I love the Latin word, resurgum. It means I shall rise. And Jesus in Revelation is seen in all his risen glory. And the promise is that the one who was once the lamb for sinners slain will return, now seen as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So I now want to go on and look at the return of Jesus and the end of the world as we know it and what the implications are for us in having eternal life. When Jesus ascended, two angels told the disciples that Jesus would return in just the same way that he had ascended. The epistles make frequent reference to the coming of the Lord and the early church was looking for his imminent return. Now, there are three Greek words used in connection with the second coming. And each word gives a slightly different perspective to this one event. And Revelation draws from the meaning of all these words together in this cataclysmic finale to the end of the age as we know it. The most common word is parousia. Now, this is a word that would be used in the Greek language describing the arrival of a king, an emperor, a great ruler, a great potentate. And this is the word Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he talks about the return of Jesus. It is the parousia. He uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 15, that when believers are resurrected from the dead, it will be at the parousia, the arrival of the king. Now, another word is epiphania. And this has the idea of showing oneself. It denotes a public appearance, a visible reality. There will be nothing secretive about Jesus' return. 
And the word is used several times in connection with the coming of Jesus in 2 Thessalonians. The third word used is apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse. And this means simply to unveil, to reveal. It is a full disclosure, but usually when that word is used, it has an aspect of judgment with it, which we will look at in a moment. Now, in Revelation, we get all these thoughts combining as Jesus arrives with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in Revelation chapter 19, we see him. He is the one who is faithful and true, who has conquered and overthrown Satan and his demonic hordes. He is the one whose eyes are as of a flaming fire, penetrating into the depths of every human heart. On his head are the diadems and crowns of eternal kingship. His robe is dipped in blood and it speaks of his own suffering for our sin, but also the blood of his enemies as he brings about this awesome judgment. Out of his mouth comes the sharp two-edged sword and as he speaks, he strikes down nations and governments who have opposed him. The Bible shows us clearly that physical death is not the end. So then, what happens when Jesus returns or if we die before that happens? So our life will end either when we die or when Jesus returns. So what happens? So are we annihilated? Well, we've already looked at that. Do we just go to sleep? Rest in peace. Now, it's interesting, the Greek word for cemetery means sleeping place. Do we go to heaven? Now, the problem when we talk about heaven is that the Bible uses the concept of heaven in different ways. And according to the context, we will get different meanings and perspectives of what heaven actually is. So the Bible talks about the heavens as a place where the birds fly. So you look up and you see the birds flapping around and they're flapping around in the heavens. So the Bible uses the word like that. It is a place where the stars and the planets are. So we look up into the heavens and we see the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets. But there is another concept of heaven and that is called the heavenly places. And we, when we are Christians, are raised up with Christ into the heavenly places. Now, that is a place of supernatural activity that exists for us in the present. It is a place where the activity of God, the angels, the devil, demons, all of that supernatural stuff goes on. And we are raised up with Christ 
into the heavenly places and we, by the Holy Spirit, have a supernatural perspective. So the Bible uses heaven in that sense. But there is another sense in which the word heaven is used and that is the place where if we are born-again Christians, our soul spirit continues to exist in the presence of God when we die, enjoying the delights of heaven, but waiting in eager anticipation for our eternal destiny. Those who are not Christians will be in a place separated from God, awaiting the day of judgment. The one thing we can be clear about is that when we die and exit this world, we do enter another one. For the Christian, it is an entrance into the presence of God. You remember, Jesus told the dying thief, this day you will be with me in paradise. When a person dies without Christ, they enter a place of separation from God, but both non-Christians and Christians are in one place or another waiting for the day when Jesus returns and all the dead everywhere are raised. So when Jesus returns, the resurrection of the dead leads to the whole of creation being judged. Revelation 20 says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. We can conclude from this passage that the resurrection and the final judgment are connected events. Now, as I've already said, when we are born again, we are risen with Christ. His life is in us. But it is not just that we have the now experience of Christ in us. When he returns, we shall be raised from the dead and we will have a body that will be just like the risen Lord Jesus. The gospel narrative shows how he was totally recognisable. The two friends on the Emmaus Road were walking and talking with a human being, not a ghost or a spirit. When Jesus met the disciples on the seashore, <laughs> I love this, he was cooking breakfast and eating fish. Love it. When we are resurrected, our bodies will no longer be subject to decay. We shall be raised incorruptible. We shall be glorified, radiant, dazzling even. 
we cannot possibly imagine what that will look like or feel like, but it will be glorious. We will no longer become weary, weak or sick, and yet we will have a physical body. And that will be in the new heavens and the new earth which God will recreate. So the plan of salvation, the coming of Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the formation of the church were all part of this process to bring creation back to its original order and purpose. The new heavens and the new earth will be a second genesis. There are many other passages of scripture that express the same idea. The renewal of the present cosmos shows us the complete and utter defeat of Satan. If the heaven and earth had been totally destroyed, Satan would have won a great victory. There is no such victory. God will renew, restore and regenerate what he started. Chapter 21 of Revelation sees the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven onto the earth and the church will be the bride made ready, adorned for her husband. Both the new heavens and the new Jerusalem fulfil the idea we looked at in Genesis 1 and 2 that God was making his abode, his dwelling place here on earth. The description of the holy city and the new heavens and the new earth is full of imagery. Precious stones, speaking of the bride adorned, the original temple being restored, the presence of God being with us. The overarching theme here is that we will forever be with the Lord. Now, there is so much detail in the book of Revelation, there is not time to go into all the symbolism of it. But the important thing to remember is that we who are redeemed will be the bride of Christ, adorned and made beautiful. But there will be a separation and exclusion from those who have rejected Christ. We will be in a conscious place with all the beauties of creation without any hint of sin or suffering. We will know and recognise each other and all the joys of earth we have now will be ours. Central to our experience will be our enjoyment in every moment of the realised presence of God. The Lamb will be a constant reminder of how we have entered into this glorious bliss of the purified. Life in the new heavens and the new earth will have everything wonderful about life on earth as we know it now. But there will be no tears, 
no sickness, no death. There will be a river of life running through, causing abundant fruitfulness and trees with leaves that will heal tensions between nations and races. All nations will live together in harmony. The human mind cannot take that in. All we can do is stand back and worship. God will end the story so that the real story can begin. Now, towards the end of Revelation, it says, blessed are those who wash their robes, who've been given the right to enter the city. But there is a warning. It says, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, if you did a word study on all of those words, it includes the whole of the human race who have rejected Christ. It's an awesome and fearsome thing to think about. So, to answer the question, is there life after death? The Bible gives us an emphatic yes. But more than that, it tells us of the quality of that life and that it comes through faith in Jesus to forgive our sins. It also gives a warning that there will be a place of eternal separation if we reject the gospel. But we who are in Christ live with the glorious hope of Jesus' return. And all I can say to that is, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's say that together. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Hallelujah.